0: All right, it's a great privilege for me to be here today as always. Uh, you know, it's not my normal practice to be able to identify visitors who come in. I'm sure that makes them uncomfortable, but I did want to say um, I'm just extremely grateful that Jim and Beth Luby are here today. For those of you who are at the Women's Street, you're blessed uh, by Beth and her teaching. And uh, Jim, I, I don't know if you know this, I've probably told many Jim Luby stories over the years and maybe, maybe you haven't made that connection, but of all the people who've influenced me in my life, Jim is probably the man who had the most influence on me spiritually, uh, and after I came to know Christ my freshman year of college, uh, Mark Walter spent a great deal of time investing in me. And then the next three years, Jim just poured into my life. And so uh, I'm just extraordinarily grateful that he's here today and that I'm able to say this, this in some sense is my spiritual father. And to be able to say publicly that I'm thankful to God for his influence is a great privilege for me today. And so Jim, Beth, I just want to say thank you for all the ways you've blessed me over the years. Thank you for being with us here this weekend. If there's anything that I know from Jim that he's taught me over the years is that we should always be driven to the word and that we should always be centered on the word. And so it's my privilege today to be able to go to the word together. I feel like if anything would honor Jim, it would be to preach the word of God because that's what I need to do. And ultimately, of course, our goal is to honor God. And we know that what we need more than anything is to hear from him. And so let me pray here, and then we'll dive into Colossians. Father, we're we're so grateful uh, for, I just, I feel like every week, I, I just start by saying we're grateful, and it's true, we are grateful. We're grateful for your word, we're grateful for people who invest in us, we're grateful for the fact that you are merciful to us. We love your son, we love the gospel. We love the fact that we get to come together every Sunday, that despite everything that's happened during the week, despite the stresses that we are facing, that we get to come together and remind each other that there is hope found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we are praying that today, that as we gather, that our hearts will be filled with gratitude and also that it would be filled with a passion and a love for you. Lord, we love you we pray that we would love your word today, that we would long to hear from it. Thank you for giving us the privilege of coming together and to be recharged by your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, Mark Twain once said, and I think he was probably right from at least a certain perspective, he says that clothes make the man. In our society and in probably every other society, ones that I'm not even aware of, what you wear does matter. Of course, this has always been the case in her book, The Language of Clothes, which, by the way, I've not read, but I did read an excerpt from this week. Author Alison Lurie says that she points out that historically, clothes have always been a status symbol. In ancient Egypt, only those in high position could wear sandals. The ancient Greeks and Romans controlled the type, color, and number of garments worn. During the Middle Ages, almost every aspect of clothing was at one point or another mandated. And even up until 1700 in Europe, there were laws made about who could wear what and when. And while we may not have those types of laws in place today, there is no doubt that clothing still matters in our society. Numerous studies have shown, unsurprisingly, that oftentimes people's first perception of us is based solely on what we are dressed in. Even minor differences apparently can make a big difference. A 2013 Psychology Today article reported on a recent study in which participants were asked to make snap judgments about their impressions of people. In this particular study, uh, the participants were given a picture of the same man. Now, they didn't know it was the same man because his face wasn't uh, clearly visible, but the pictures, one picture, the man was wearing a suit. The other picture, the man was wearing a suit also. The same suit, or at least um, the same color, the same fabric, the same type of make, except with one difference. In the one picture, it was a fitted suit. In the other, it was just off the rack. And across the board, participants said, The man wearing the fitted suit was more confident, more successful, more flexible, and a higher wage earner, just based on the fact that his suit fit him well. They didn't hear him talk. They didn't know anything else. They just assumed that if he had a fitted suit, he must be all of these things, successful, flexible, a high wage earner. What we wear matters. And listen, even if you don't think, if you think that you are above the clothing fray, you're like, I don't make those types of judgments. I think that we can all agree that at least at some level, we do make judgments based on clothing. For example, if you run into a man who's wearing a suit, you don't assume that he's about to go out and jog a marathon, right? Or if you run into someone wearing workout clothes, you don't assume they're on their way to some important meeting. There's just no getting around the fact that what we wear says something about us. Now, as you might expect, I'm not trying to get you to think deeply about what you wore here today, right? This is not a sermon on fashion. That hopefully does not surprise you. I'm actually going somewhere with this, I promise. Although I will say this, I do think the gospel should even impact the way we think about the clothes that we wear. But maybe that's another sermon for another time. But the reason I bring up this clothing analogy is simply this. that in Colossians 3, this is the language that Paul uses. He uses the language that clearly would be used to describe someone who's putting off and putting on clothes. I think there's a reason he wants to do that. Because he understands that this is something we can all relate to. Clothing is something that matters in our life, and what he's trying to get us to see in Colossians 3 is that there's something far more important than the regular clothes that we put on, and it's it's this, that we are to be clothed with Christ. Listen, for better or worse, our clothing matters, but listen, the type of clothing that Paul is talking about in Colossians 3 is infinitely more important than what you are wearing today. And so let's look here. We're going to go back to Colossians 3, 9 through 12, actually. Because in the four verses leading up to our passage today, or actually the three verses leading up to it today, this is where he starts using this language. It should become apparent to us as we read that, yes, he's using the language of putting off and putting on clothes, but clearly he's talking about something more important than just regular clothes. So starting in verse 9, let's read this. It says this, Colossians 3, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self. Some translations, the old man. With its practices. Now put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So I hope you caught that. In verse 9, he says, You've put off. This is language that you would expect someone to use when they're talking about taking off clothes. Put off the old self. Verse 10 put on the new self, and then again in verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones. Clearly the imagery he's giving us, he's trying to draw our attention to something we all understand, this idea of taking off and putting on clothes. But he's trying to get us to see that there's something deeper going on. What he's saying is that we are to take off the old and to put on the new. So practically what this means for us as Christians is that there are certain things that we are to put off. This is what we talked about last week. We are to put to death certain things. We are to put to death sexual morality. We are to put to death sinful attitudes and ways of speaking. But also, and this is what the passage is about this week, we are to put on something new. So it's not just that we take off the old, but it's also that we put on the new. So think of it this way, all right? My dad was a veterinarian. And occasionally in my growing up years, I would go out with my dad to his work. And so sometimes that meant that we would go to the office and he would look at dogs and cats, those types of things. But because my dad was a large animal and small animal veterinarian, sometimes that meant that we would go to the farm, right? And we would go as he looked at cows or as he looked at horses or as he looked at sheep or as he looked at pigs. And I have to say that there was nothing worse than going to the pig farm. Now, I say that with all due respect to pig farmers because I have the utmost respect for those who make a living uh, raising pigs. In fact, we have some really good friends who did that and they are hardworking people. But let me tell you why it was a miserable experience. It's because pigs are really stinky, all right? They are awfully stinky. There's a reason why there's a phrase, your room looks like a pig pen. Because pigs are nasty animals. They are smelling. If you've ever been to a pig farm, you know that the scent just lingers for you, on you for hours, right? You could be eight hours later and the smell would still be lingering. I mean, it's just an awful experience. And so when we came home, when we came home from the pig farm, when I helped my dad out, there was no doubt we were not coming to the table until we cleaned up, right? There was just no way about it. We were not going to sit down at the dinner table smelling like that. But here's the thing, it's not just that I would take off the dirty clothes, it's that I would put on new clothes as well. I was not coming to the dinner table having just taken off the old, if you catch my drift, right? I was also to put on the new. Both were important, right? Both aspects, to not only take off the old, but to put on new and fresh clothes. I think that's what Paul is saying here. Christianity is not just a matter of taking things off, in other words, not doing things. It's also a matter of living a different way. It's not just that you take off the old way of living, it's that you put on a new way. Right, So in the context of Colossians, it's not just that you stop being sexually immoral or that you stop lying or you stop speaking in slanderous ways. It's also that you live in a new way. I think uh, when Paul says that we are to put off the old man and to put on the new man, really what he's trying to say is this, that we are to put off Adam, our old sinful, fleshy, fleshly way of living, and we are to put on Christ. Right? To take off Adam and to put on Christ. And so last week, our focus was on taking off the old. This week, the focus is on putting on the new. So what does that look like? What does it mean to put on the new man? What does it mean to put on Christ? Well, that's Colossians 3, 12 to 17. Now, before we get to this passage, let me just say this. I think there's a lot of discussion in our culture what we as Christians are against. Our culture is very familiar with things that we are against. I just want you to know, that's okay. There should be certain things that we should be against. Last week, the things that we talked about putting off It's okay if our culture knows that we are against certain things, but also I would suggest that our culture should be aware of things that we are for. They should not just know what we are against, that's okay, but they should also know what we are for. In other words, we should be known not just for what we have put off, but also what we have put on. And that's what this passage is about, what we are to put on. So let's read here, Colossians 3, verses 12 to 17. Right, this is the passage Kathy read earlier. It's a great passage. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are in one body. and in, Indeed, you were called in one body. And be thankful Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So what does it mean to put on this new person? What does it mean to put on Christ? Well, not surprisingly, since I think putting on the new man does mean putting on Christ, Everything that we see in this passage has a Christocentric focus to it, meaning that it's Christ-centered. So I want you to notice first that we are to put on Christ-like characteristics. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. This is what is to characterize us as Christians, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Now I would guess that you're probably familiar with most of those words. You probably know what compassion and kindness and patience are. But I think it's worth just stopping and talking for a little bit about the other two: humility and meekness. Interestingly enough, in biblical times, humility was a despised characteristic. To be labeled as a humble person was not a, a, a some sort of compliment. It was rather an insult. But clearly, Christianity turned this on its head. And specifically, Jesus turned this on its head. Because Jesus was humble. This is Philippians chapter 2. and Paul, in, in chapter 2 uh, of Philippians, Paul talks about Christ's humility. And he makes it clear that humility is not just thinking lowly of yourself. It's thinking of others. It's putting the interest of others ahead of yourself. This is what Jesus perfectly exemplified. And in Philippians 2, this is what we are called to, to look to the interest of others, to consider the interest of others above ourselves. Now, this is a word that may at one time have been something that was meant as a derogatory statement, but it's something that we as Christians strive for. We want to be like Jesus. Now, the word meekness, I would venture to say that not only did it have a negative connotation back then, it still has a negative connotation today. In fact, if you were to walk into your office tomorrow... And the first thing you did in the morning is you walked into your boss's office and you said, boss. Now, you probably wouldn't say boss, right? Like, you'd say their name, whatever it is. I don't know your boss's name, so you said, boss. I want you to know I really appreciate your meekness. I doubt that they would receive that as a compliment, right? Now, maybe it's just because the word meek rhymes with weak. I think that we oftentimes associate meekness with weakness. I'm not sure why that is. But the word is not being used in the New Testament in a weak way. The Greek lexicon defines the word this way. It's the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's own self importance. Let me say that again. The quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's own self importance. Now, it's easy to see how that is a commendable trait in all people, but especially in Christians. We recognize we are not important, but He is. He must become greater, we must become less. That's what meekness is. Now, amazingly, I would argue that Christ was meek. right? Even though he had every right to have a sense of self-importance, he set aside that self-importance. Instead, he died on the cross for us. Despite the fact that he deserved nothing but praise and honor, he willingly suffered the wrath of God on our behalf, despite the fact that we refused to praise and honor him. That is meekness. And that way, I would say this, that every characteristic that's mentioned here is perfectly lived out by Jesus Christ. He was compassionate. You remember when he sees the crowds, what do do they say? What do the gospel authors say? They say he was compassionate. He had compassion on the crowds. When he is mocked and ridiculed and beaten, what does he respond with? He responds with kindness. As we've already pointed out, he demonstrated humility. He was meek. Even though he had every right to feel a sense of self-importance, he set it aside for us. And he was patient. Oh, he was patient. Right? He could have struck us down for our sin and would have every right to do so, but yet, instead, he chose to be struck down himself on our behalf. And listen, not only did he exemplify those things in his time on the earth, he still does exemplify those things. And it's not that he was compassionate. It's that he is compassionate. And he is kind. And he is humble. He is meek. He is patient. Romans 13, 14 says this, that we are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. This is what it means to put on the new man of Christ. It means that we become more like Jesus. It means that we value compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So let me ask you this. If I were to go to your spouse today, if I were to go to your kids, if I were to walk up to your boss tomorrow at work, and I were to ask them, is so-and-so compassionate, Is so-and-so kind? Is so-and-so humble? Is so-and-so meek? Are they patient? What would they say? If I were to find them after the service, if I were to find your family members, and I would say, do these attributes describe this person? What would they say? Now, I know what some of you are thinking. And I know you're thinking this because I've had these discussions over the years. Some of you are thinking, you don't understand what my workplace is like. Or you don't understand what my family is like. Right? And some of you are thinking right now that I'm off in some sort of nether regions that's like, this is not real life. Right? And I know that's true because I've had this conversation with many people over the years. Right? You're thinking, this is just la-la fantasy land. Maybe you're not thinking exactly in those terms, but you're thinking something like that. Right? You're like, this is not real life. So if that's you, let me just say a couple of things in response here. First is this. To display Christ-like characteristics is not a measure of weakness. It is a measure of strength, because it shows that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is at work in you, and He is powerful. To say that Christ-like characteristics are weak is to say that Christ was weak, and nothing, hear me, nothing can be further from the truth. He is the epitome of strength. If you don't believe me, read the Bible, right? I mean, you can cherry pick, and oftentimes we have this this idea that Jesus was just kind of mild and just kind of mellow, just rolling with the flow. Read Revelation, right? Read all of the Bible and understand that there is nothing weak at all about Jesus. He was the picture of strength. So let's be careful here not to equate Christ's likeness with wimpiness, because I think we often do that. And we think, well, I'd be a wimp if I was kind and compassionate and meek. Are you willing to say that Jesus is a wimp? I don't think you should say that. I think that would be a really bad idea because it's not true. And so let's be careful here not to equate those things with being a wimp. Now, being compassionate and kind, I don't think that means that you need to get walked over at work, but I do think that it means that we should be Christ-like. Now, here's the other thing I would say. There's no exception given in this passage, right? He doesn't say be humble and compassionate, kind, meek, patient, unless you work in a cutthroat business or unless your kids are really tough, then you have an exception, He doesn't say that. There's no exception given here. As much as you would like to have him, as much as you'd like to think, well, I just don't think he knew what it was like to work in New York City, right? Now, understand this. Jesus knew exactly what he was saying here. The Holy Spirit knew exactly what he was saying here. And when he inspired Paul to say this, he knew exactly what he wanted Paul to say. This is not an accident. So as Christians, whatever excuses we may want to make, this is what we are called to do. We are called to put on compassion, kindness, meekness, humility, and patience. We are to be all of these things. Now, you may be saying, okay, you've convinced me. How do I live this out in my workplace? And the answer is, I don't know. I don't know. You you need to pray, because I don't know what your workplace is like. I don't know what your situation is like. I don't know what your home life is like. But you need to pray that the Holy Spirit would give you wisdom to know what this looks like. Because the fact of the matter is that we are called as Christians to put on these things. We are to take off the old way of living, and this is one of the things that we are to put on Christ-like characteristics. Now, I think there's one other thing pointing out in verse 12 before we move on. Before I point it out, let me just take you back to last week's passage. You may remember that in last week's passage, what we talked about is that we are to put to death an earthly way of living. And I argued, and I argued this way because this is the way Paul is arguing, that the reason why we do that is because we have already died with Christ to our sin. In other words, we are no longer a slave to our sin, and now we just need to go live out that reality. That's the argument that Paul was making last week. F.F. F. Bruce said it this way. I quoted him last week. We are to be in actual practice what we already are by divine act. So the divine act is that, that God said that we are no longer slaves to sin. We are dead to sin. And now we are to in actual practice live that out. Well, this is the same logic that's being used in verse 12. Look carefully at the way the passage begins. Look what he says at the very beginning. This is really interesting. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And then he goes on to list those five things. Now here's what's interesting about that statement. Oftentimes, the way that we think we became loved by God or approved by God is if we do those things, right? That's not the way that Paul's arguing here. In other words, what we think is, okay, if I'm kind and if I'm compassionate and if I'm meek, then God will love me. That's not the way that Paul starts here, right? He says, you are loved. You are holy. He's speaking to Christians. We need to make that distinction. He's speaking to Christians. He's saying, you are holy. You are chosen. You are loved. Now go and live accordingly. It's a huge difference. He reminds them that they are chosen. This is what James was talking about earlier. Now, all the things that he says here actually are ways that he described the Israelites in the Old Testament. Chosen, holy, beloved, What he's saying here, I think, is that the church is the new Israel, that we are now the people of God. We are the chosen ones. We are the ones that he has set his love on. We didn't first choose him. He chose us. We were the object of his affection and love. It's only by God's grace that we were brought into the family. He chose us. He set us apart as holy. In fact, that's what holy means, literally, to be set apart. He set us apart, and we are beloved. Listen, sometimes it's easy to forget this, but if you are a Christian, you need to remember God loves you. He loves you. He's pleased with you. He delights in you. Now, I don't think it's a coincidence that all of those things could also be used to describe Jesus. In fact, sometimes directly, most of the times directly, but other times indirectly, all those things were used to describe him in the Gospels, that he was the chosen one, that he is the holy one, that he's the one beloved by the Father. Because the fact of the matter is that our status before God comes from Jesus, The fact that he was holy, the fact that he was chosen, the fact that he was beloved is why we can say all those things are true of us. This is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ Christ in our place. It's not just that he took the punishment for our sin, that's amazing, but it's also that his righteousness was credited to us as well. So when God looks at us, he sees his son, Christ in our place. The reason why we are beloved is because the son is beloved. The reason why we are labeled as holy is because the Son was holy. And so that's what Paul's reminding us of in verse 12. He's saying, listen, these things are true of you. You are holy, beloved. You are chosen. So of course you should want to put on this new way of living. We are the chosen ones. We are holy. We are beloved. Not because we deserve to be chosen. Not because we lived in a way to be considered holy. Not because we were lovable. In fact, the opposite was true. We deserve the wrath of God. We lived in an impure and unholy way. We were his enemies, not his beloved. But because Christ is our substitute, we are holy, we are beloved, we are chosen. And in light of that, Paul is saying then put on these attributes. This is actually a really interesting argument because it goes against the face of what every other religion in the world says, right? Every other religion in the world says, do these things, act this way, and then you can have the approval of God. Christianity says, through Christ, you already have the approval. Now go and live in response to that. Do you understand the difference? To miss the difference is to miss the heart of Christianity. If you think to yourself that you have to earn his approval, then you're missing the point. The point is that Christ has earned the approval for you. And in response, we want to go and put on these new attributes. Now, listen, I fear that for some of you in here today, you are still stuck in the old way of thinking. In fact, maybe the reason why you are here today is because you think that if you just come to church and you take your kids to Sunday school and you pray every now and then and you're a pretty good person that you'll have the approval of God. can't happen that way. It won't happen that way. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that Christ earned the approval we cannot earn. Listen, if you're here today, you cannot earn his approval. Your rebellion is too deep. It's not just that you have sinned. And the Bible in Romans 3 says that all of us sinned. It's that you are a sinner. In other words, to your very core, you are a rebel. You are an insurrectionist. And there is no way you can earn his approval. But the good news is that if we trust in Christ, we can have our sins forgiven. And so as always, let me just plead with you. If you are here today and you have never done that. And listen, I know there are people here today who have never actually trusted in Christ. Who have never believed in Christ. And by believing in Christ, I don't just mean intellectually agree that Jesus died on the cross. I mean, you have treasured him above everything else. I would plead with you to stop trying to earn God's approval and instead recognize that Christ earned it for you. And if you are a Christian, I would say this is what should motivate you to live differently. This is what should motivate you to put on these Christ-like attributes because you know that you are holy, you are beloved, you are chosen, and it's because of Jesus. This is the motivation. So, we are to put on these Christ-like attributes, but not only that, we are to live out Christ-like actions. Verse 13. Verse 13 of Colossians 3 says this, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Now, a good question in response to verse 12. What does it look like to be kind, compassionate, meek? What does this look like in everyday life? One of the responses I would give is, it looks a lot like verse 13. It means that we bear with other Christians. We forgive other Christians. All right. I want you to think for just a minute about the nicest and sweetest Christian that you know. All right? Uh, Maybe there's someone who immediately comes to your mind. For me, it's this lady named Margaret Raleigh. She was at our church in Amarillo. She was always the type, when you saw her, she would smile at you. She would give you a hug. She always had something encouraging to say. Sometimes she would even bring goodies to the church, right? She was always praying for you. She was the best. Now, I don't know who your Margaret Raleigh is. I hope you have someone like that in your life. But let me ask you a question. Is it hard for you to love that person? I doubt it, right? I seriously doubt it. I bet it's very easy for you to love that person. In fact, I never once had to think to myself, boy, I really have to bear with Margaret today. She is just driving me crazy. I never thought that, right? I always thought when I saw her, this is a great day. I think that gives us a clue that verse 13, verse 13 reminds us that Christianity is often lived out in the hard moments. And we're not talking about loving the person who's easy to love. We're talking about bearing with each other. We're talking about forgiving each other in hard circumstances. That's the test of your Christianity. The test of your Christianity is not, do you love the person who is really sweet and nice? Everybody loves that person. The test of your Christianity is, can you bear with others and forgive others? It's not, can you love the Margaret Rawlings of the world? It's, can you love the person who's really hard to love? That's the question. Let's just be honest with each other here for a second and say this. There will be times when other Christians annoy, frustrate, and irritate you. There will be times, even more significantly, when other Christians wound and betray you. And if you haven't experienced that yet, I would just say, give it time, right? It's coming. Or I would say you haven't been around Christians long enough. Because if you're around Christians, there'll be times where they drive you crazy. There'll be times where they do things that hurt you. And in fact, if we're honest, there's times where we drive others crazy and we hurt other people. And the question is, how do we respond in those moments? In those moments, we figure out how much we really love and believe the gospel, when we are feeling hurt or betrayed by others. The test of your belief in the gospel is not when the sun is shining and the cookies are coming out of the oven, right? The test of your belief in the gospel is when the clouds are hanging low and the sting of betrayal is fresh on your mind. That's when you find out how much you really believe the gospel. And the reason I say that in part is because of what verse 13 says at the end. It says this, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, As the Lord has forgiven you, and get this, so you also must forgive. A person who understands how much he's been forgiven by God will be quick to bear with others and forgive others. Kevin Young recently said this. He said, it is always true. We have sinned against God more than anyone has sinned against us. Uh, That's true. We have sinned against God more than anyone has sinned against us. J.D. Greer says it this way. We are first sinners second sinned against. Right? We have to understand that our betrayal of Christ is far greater than anyone will ever betray us. And so here's the reality. If you understand how much Christ has forgiven you, how could we not forgive others? That's actually the point of the peril of the unforgiving servant. You may remember that story. The, the servant has this debt that could never be paid back. And the master forgives him the debt. And then that servant who is forgiven the debt goes out and chokes the guy who owes him basically 10 bucks, right? And if you read that story, you always think, what a fool. But the point is, that's who we are if we can't forgive in light of how much God has forgiven us. If you find in yourself an unwillingness to bear with others or an unwillingness to forgive others, don't assume that it's just because you've been hurt more than other people have been hurt. I think that's often what we think. We think, well, I would forgive, but my hurts are much deeper. And I I think the way we need to start is by saying this, if we are lacking forgiveness, if we are lacking a bearing with one another, is because there's some aspect of the gospel that needs to be pressed deeper into our hearts. Now, I don't say that in any way to minimize the pain that others can cause us. Few things in the world are more painful than a Christian who betrays us or hurts us or wounds us. But what I am saying is this, that if we understand the gospel of Jesus Christ we will understand that the betrayal and hurt that we cause Christ are far worse than any betrayal or hurt that someone else will cause us. That's why Paul says, if you've been forgiven, you must forgive others. If you're unable to forgive, if you're unable to bear with others, it's a sign that the gospel has not taken complete control of your heart yet. And again, I'm not saying that to minimize pain. I know that some of you walked in here today and you are just dealing with heavy, heavy pain. There are some emotional things that have happened to you in the past that you can just hardly bear. I would just say this. I'm praying that the gospel of Jesus Christ would free you from those things. Now, it's worth noting here that Paul is speaking to the offended party, right? Not the offenders. In other words, the onus is on us who've been offended to bear with and forgive others. Now, I would argue this is one of the things that will make the gospel beautiful. If we can do this, then we will be a beautiful community that Doug talked about at our retreat a few weeks ago. We will be a community that clearly displays what it looks like to love one another. And that leads to the next thing that we see in this passage. To put on the new self means that we live with a Christ-like love. Verse 14. Verse 14 says this. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So above everything, we are to put on love. Turn with me just a minute to 1 Corinthians 13. So a few books back to your left. Right, first Corinthians chapter 13. If you've ever been to a Christian wedding, there's a good chance that they read this passage of Scripture. All right, it's a great passage. It's really convicting, though, too. First Corinthians 13, we're just going to read the first three verses here. Verse 1 says this, "'If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing.'" If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, I think actually verses 1 through 3 are filled with just this striking imagery, but I love verse 3 in particular. If I give away all I have, let's be honest, that's some pretty serious devotion, right? If I give away all I have, the rest of the verse goes on to say, if I deliver up my body to be burned, that's about as serious as you can get in terms of devotion, that you would deliver up your body to be burned, and yet you lack love, you have nothing. So listen, if you live out 12 and 13, or at least if you think you're living out 12 and 13, and you think you're being kind and compassionate, you think you're bearing with others and forgiving others, but you're not loving other people, you are missing the point. Love is the virtue that binds everything together. To use our analogy, love is the overcoat that goes over everything else. Without love, we are missing the point. Now, biblically speaking, I don't think you can love people and the way that the Bible describes love apart from the love of Christ. The reason why we love other people is because he first loved us. That's First John. And so again, the key to living this way is understanding what Jesus has done. If you understand what Jesus has done, then you can love other people the other way. And I hope that by this point, you're getting kind of the drift of this passage, right? Everything is pointing back to Christ. Putting on these new clothes is not just a matter of deciding, I'm going to try harder. It's a matter of continually looking to the gospel of Jesus Christ and continually reminding yourself this is what Jesus has done and this is what is true of me. And that's why the passage ends the way it does, by driving home the point that we must live with a Christ-centered focus. In fact, the last three verses, they're all saying this very thing, that we are to live with a Christ-centered focus. Verse 15 says this. says this, Let the peace and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Verse 15 implores us, Let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Listen, there is a lot to be worried about in our world. Right? There's ISIS. We've got that to deal with. And we have what's happening in Ukraine. and We have the Ebola virus. And we have all these other things, including all of the personal things that you are dealing with. There is a lot to be anxious about. But the peace of Christ is to rule in our hearts. Now to be clear, this is not a peace that overlooks the troubles of the world. This is not the type of peace that the hippies were referring to when they held up their fingers. Peace, man, that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is a deep peace that comes from trusting Christ and knowing that he is in control. What we're talking about is a peace that comes from knowing your future is secure in Christ. What we are talking about here is a peace that comes from knowing Christ's work on the cross and knowing that God really does love us. To put on Christ means that we are kept in perfect peace Because our heart is steadfast, trusting in him, to roughly paraphrase the book of Isaiah. And so listen, if you are a Christian, the peace of Christ should rule in our hearts. But not only that, the word of Christ should dwell in us richly. Verse 16 says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, you might ask, what exactly is the Word of Christ? This is what verse 16 says. It says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Well, the Word of Christ, I think, is the Bible. The Bible is over and over and over again whispering one name, Jesus. Every page is pointing us to this person, Christ. This is the Word that testifies about Christ. It's the Word of Christ. And this Word, if you are a Christian, is to dwell in you richly. So let me ask you this. If you claim to be a Christian, does the word of God dwell in you richly? Does it make its home in you? When you make decisions, is it the word of God that guides you? When you're tempted to sin, does scripture run through your mind? When you're speaking to others, does scripture flow off your tongue? When faced with horrible circumstances, does the word of Christ comfort? Do you teach and admonish and encourage each other with God's word? Do you love the word because it points to the Savior? Does it live in you? Does the word of God, does the word of Christ dwell in you? Does the word of Christ impact everything you do? And maybe even more to the point, does Christ impact everything you do? That's the last verse, right? Look at what he says in verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Here's what I love about verse 17. You cannot escape it, right? By our nature, we are loophole seekers, If you tell your kids to pick up all the toys in the family room and it just so happens that a couple of toys are a few inches into the kitchen, there's a good chance those toys are not getting picked up, right? Because technically they're not in the family room, right? We even had an incident like this this morning where one of our sons was working the loophole. He was saying, well, you told me to do this. And even though it was an inch away, he said, well, you told me to do this, right? We are loophole seekers, all of us. But there's no loophole here, right? Right? I think we want loopholes. We want to say, well, if I'm just serious about Christ when I come to church or when I'm at care group, then I can do whatever I want when I'm at work. Verse 17 will not let you do that. There is no loophole. If you work, it's to be for the name of Christ. If you go on vacation, it's to be for the glory of Christ. If you are a parent, parent for God's glory. If you're married, you're married for God's glory. If you watch a movie, do it in the name of Jesus Christ. If you eat breakfast, do it for Christ. And I think you get the point. I could literally go on all day, right? Everything you do is to be for the glory of Christ. Everything. To put on Christ means that you are consumed by Christ. It means that everything you do is for him. I've heard this phrase that's running around recently that I just need some me time. That's that's crazy. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do, do it in the name of Christ. It's his time. Don't think that it's your time. Oh, I'll have my time. I understand what people are saying. We need rest. That's true. What we really need is to live for Christ. That's what we need more than anything else. To put on Christ means that he is our passion. It means that we live with Christ-centered attributes, that we live out Christ-centered love, that we have Christ-like actions. And it means that we burn with a Christ-centered focus. But let me be clear here. The reason why do we do all of this is not because we should, not because we feel guilty, not because I'm telling you to, it's because we love the gospel. I want you to look at the way each of the last three verses in. Verse 15 says this. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Verse 16, in all wisdom, sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Verse 17, whatever you do, in word or you do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Listen, the reason why we gather for worship is because we're thankful for the gospel. The reason why we are willing to sing songs, this is Uh, What we do every week, we sing songs. This is where this comes from, Colossians, right? It's because we love the Gospel, we're thankful. The reason why we love others is because we're thankful. The reason why we forgive others is because we're thankful. The reason why we're kind and compassionate is because we're thankful. The The reason why we put off the old is because we're thankful. The reason why we put on the new is because we're thankful. It's because we love the Gospel. And if your motivation is anything else, it will not last. It's gratitude for the good news of Jesus Christ. This is what motivates us to take off the old and put on the new. Let me plead with you. Let thankfulness rule in your hearts. Love the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you do, if you understand what he has done, you will want nothing more than to take off the old and to put on the new. Let's pray. Father, we are incredibly thankful. It seems like the only appropriate response to what we're reading today is that we should be thankful And so, Father, we just want to say we are thankful to you for the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ. We are thankful for all that you have done for us. We are thankful that in you we are holy and beloved. We are thankful that in you we can be thought of as your children. And so, Father, we are praying, God, that we would be motivated to take off the old and put on the new because we are thankful. God, we love you. We love you. We pray all these things in Your Son Jesus Christ's name. Amen.